And in a sense, as we go through this series that we're in, we're seeking to remind one another that the peace that we have together as the church is a peace that really is rooted in who God is and what He has done and not in our living up to all the expectations we may have around it. If you're new here and you've not heard this before, our church believes in what we call the grammar of the gospel. And that is, I am always precedes I do. We live in a world that often tells us that what do you do and what do you do and how well you do it gives you the definition of who you are. But the gospel tells us it's who we are first that then leads to what we do. And so our life is called as followers of Jesus to just constantly be reminding and rehearsing the truth of the gospel so that we do not fall under that oppression of that legalistic mindset that our worth and value is found in our performance. We also have some gospel identities that then flow out of that as a church that we take from the Great Commission call to be baptized as disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we talk about the fact that we are disciples. That's an identity we have. You're not a disciple when you go do disciple type stuff. No, through faith in Christ, you are a disciple. We are family. We've been baptized in the name of the Father. That means we're the children of God, which means we're family. So we're not family when we do family stuff. We are family, whether you like it or not. It's who we are. We also talk about, and we'll talk about this morning, about the fact that we are servants. Jesus is the great servant of the Lord, the Son of God, the servant king. Isaiah lays that out. The gospel writers made that connection. And so as we're baptized in the name of the Son, then we find ourselves as servants. It's, it's who we are. And through the whole story of God, really, we'll get to this, the definition of service is worship. We are worshipers as we serve. And then ultimately baptized in the name of the Spirit, we are the sent people of God. So we say that we are missionaries. So we live in those identities. But as you live in those and as you gather as family, as you grow as disciples, you give as servants, you go as missionaries, things just aren't always what they're cracked up to be. If you've been a Christian for any, number of t- any, any long length of time or if you've been a part of any kind of church or community of faith you will find out it can be very disappointing. And the word that we use to kind of summarize that and give it some more flesh is it can be very disillusioning. That is, you thought, I'll have this experience. And then it just didn't end up being all that you thought it was going to be. So we're taking these weeks to do that. And we've looked at what it, just the disillusionment with the local church in general the first week. We looked at disillusionment with being disciples. We've looked at disillusionment as living as family. And this morning we'll talk about it as servants. So if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 8 is where we're going to look in verses 1 through 15. We may not get through all these verses this morning, but I think this is a beautiful picture of what we're called to be as God's servants. So read with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. 
so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today to help us to be present. We thank you, God, that we have been created in your image with the ability to understand, to relate, to know, to commune with you. We ask now, God, that we would not merely be engaged in some intellectual exercise, but that as we come into your word, that we might have a a time of participatory communion with you, God. We pray that our whole selves would be engaged as we hear your whole truth. We pray whatever I say that is not true, God, that you would defeat. We pray, God, that your spirit now, though, would lead us into truth, that that truth would help us to grow in the freedom we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever signed up for something that you thought would be really significant, super meaningful, and then it seemed to just turn out to not really be all that you thought it would be? As I thought about this, I thought about trying out for a basketball team. You try out for the team, you want to be in the game, and they tell you that you've made the team technically. This is what I mean by that. You've made the team, but what you're going to be on is the practice squad. That is, you're not going to get to play in the games. Nobody's going to see you. Nobody's going to know you. But you're going to get to work your tail off in practice to make the team better. No one will ever see what you do. It's not what you signed up to do. And although you're told it will make a big difference, it's not what you wanted. And so you would be tempted, I would say, to think, is this really worth all that work? And then you find yourself often at times not doing anything. You want to do something that matters and it feels like you've kind of just been stuck over here with all your potential held back, with no opportunities, or when the opportunities come, they just don't feel like what you thought they should be. And you know where we're going, that's how it can feel like to be a part of a church. If you don't know that, you will know that. You want to do something that feels like it really matters. And there may be moments where that happens, but a lot of times it just ends up being this ordinary, mundane stuff that nobody would ever want to make a video about, write a blog post about. And we wonder, is it worth it? We get disillusioned. Man, I thought that I was going to serve the Lord. I thought we were going to band together and and display the kingdom against the domain of darkness in ways that would make all of the world stand back, put their hands on their mouths, and and just say, what is different about you people? And yet it turns out that service actually means we have to be servants. That's where we're going to drill in today. Is that a lot of times we want to do service, but we don't want to take on the heart of a servant. We don't even want to take a lot of time to think about what it means to say you're a servant. What a humbling identity to have. The seasons where it feels like your willingness and your potential is not given opportunity. It's still worth it. Some real examples from our life together. It's weed eating in the heat alone, and then your weed eater won't crank after it goes dead. It's doing dishes after a family meal or bringing a dish, and it's all the shopping and preparation that goes into that that nobody sees. It's welcoming and talking to someone that gets on your nerves in your experience at school, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. It's picking up someone's groceries at Walmart during this coronavirus time where they're afraid to get out. 
It's giving someone a ride to a pharmacy or taking someone's kids to school when you're tired and you wish somebody would take your kids to school and get your groceries for you. It's helping your parents, your spouse, your sweet mates, your roommates clean when you don't feel like everybody else is doing their fair share. Helping your kids do their homework or get better at a hobby or sport. It's studying with a friend so they can understand something better or maybe not feel so alone. It's watching at family meal and seeing what can be done or who needs to be engaged. It's offering to give rides to family meal, to Sunday gathering, to, to the store in everyday life. It's, it's living with a listening posture before God that says, I want to, to serve in tangible ways to bless others. And it's doing all this so often when nobody's going to talk about it. Nobody's going to know. And when you're going to think, does anybody care? Is anybody else doing this? Everybody else seems to be living their life, having their best life now, and here I am changing diapers. Or listening to someone tell me the same thing for the hundredth time. And I do it without a title. Sometimes I do it without a task. Now the true story of God, again, if we had time, we could lay this out throughout the whole Bible, is that these acts of service, where we live as servants and not just do the service that looks good, these things are not just seen by God. These things are worship. That is worship. I would argue the Bible says that's more worship than anything we've done this morning in singing and anything I'll do this morning in preaching. To live as a servant of God in the mundane, everyday stuff of life, to sacrifice yourself, is to say, God, you are of greater worth than any other vision, any other seeing by any other person in this world. This is why it's worth it to keep serving when we are so disappointed and so disillusioned by what other people may think or other people may give us the opportunities to do. We face disillusionment with the worth of our service by centering our vision on our worship as servants. I'm going to say that again. We must face our disillusionment with the worth of our service of others in this world by centering our vision on our worship as servants of God. That being servants comes before doing service and being servants is who we are in spite of what that service may look like. Now how does our text this morning lead us to this? You guys realize that when they're in these more topical series, we're not going to go down through every word and verse like we do in the most seasons of our life together teaching. But the first thing we see here in these first five verses is that we are guided to live as servants in this disillusionment by Paul, first of all, just giving this inspiring example of self-giving servanthood. Like we need to be inspired. The church at Corinth, we see, is excelling in many things, but they're not excelling in this area of self-giving, sacrificial service that is primarily talking about being willing to let go of their finances in a very tangible, sacrificial way to see relief given to the church at Jerusalem, but it's about a heart behind that. Notice verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. This wasn't something out of these churches of Macedonia that was because some preacher, pastor, leader guilted them to give. It wasn't they were guilted, shamed, or intimidated to sacrifice of their finances and their lives to do this. No, it was, it was about the grace of God. It wasn't a mere project, performance, photo op, opportunity to get their service hours done. The grace of God. It came also, we see in verse 2, not from a place of comfort. That This is happening in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So the churches aren't given because, wow, look at how great our lives are. You know we ought to share this with some people. No, they're like, we're in a really bad time in our life. 
We are facing a severe test of affliction, but they are, their lives are so united with the worth of God and the joy that He gives in spite of their affliction, instead of the hardest time in their lives making them stingy and self-focused as they're squeezed by that affliction because they've been received this satisfaction in God. The overflow is not bitterness. The overflow is not detachment. The overflow is not we're disillusioned because God didn't give us the life we want, so we're not going to give now back to Him or others. No, it says they overflow in generosity. The harder things God, it seemed, the more they gave. The more they suffered, the more they said, we'll sacrifice. So verse 3 points us to the fact that this was a sacrificial giving when it hurts and costs. It says they gave according to their means, but he can testify they gave beyond it. And then they did it voluntarily. The end of verse 3 and verse 4 says they, they begged to be a part of it. You know, so often when it comes to being, living out our life as servants, whether in the church or in our everyday lives, it's like you kind of feel like you have to beg people to do stuff. you got to remind them for the hundredth time to do something. But in Macedonia, they're doing the begging. Let us participate. Where can we give? What can we do? And I think most beautifully, verse 5 points this out. It's that it says, they did this not as they expected. Paul's like, this is different. Because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Their living out their servant identity, their generosity, their giving, their sacrifice was not to please some leader in the church. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And how many times in our life, whether it be as the church or it just, is it's like, well, if they just tell me what to do. Well, if that person was just a better leader or I could respect them more or whatever, I would do more. Well, the Macedonians, they're not getting into all this stuff. Now, Corinth did. We'll get to that in a minute. Corinth is suspecting Paul. They don't trust him. They're accusing him. And so they're only willing to do as much as they feel like their leaders are faithful. Not the Macedonians. And they gave themselves first to the Lord. This is inspiring. It's what the Corinthians needed to hear. I believe it's what we need to hear. I know it's what I need to hear. And I remember when we first got on this journey of, of wanting to plan a church or be a part of a church like, like ours now, is if many of you don't know, we're part of a larger family of churches called Soma. It just means body of Christ. I want to live this stuff out. Not just sitting here and talk about service and feel like we know more about service, write a paper on service. We want to actually like go do it. And there's these awesome stories about this, this neighbor named Nikki. Cassie will laugh at this because she's heard these. We've heard them a hundred times. They were sitting out their missional community in the backyard and they look across into their neighbor's backyard and it's just, there's raccoons climbing over the fence and, you know, like downtown Tacoma, Washington, there's like not supposed to be raccoons there. It's like her backyard's just this overgrown mess. She's like a hoarder who is a recluse. And they're thinking about what would it be like to love her. And then it, and they talk about sitting around the, the bonfire out in the backyard. And they're like, what would it look like if the kingdom of God showed up in her backyard? And then they're like, it would look like a garden. And so they talked to her and got her permission. And they turned her backyard of, of loneliness and overgrowth into this beautiful community garden. They took these videos of all of them working. And it showed how they loved her. And she, they let her into her home and into her life. How she came to know Jesus. And there's these videos of them celebrating her birthday. And she's crying. I've never been loved like this before. And it's just so amazing and I just dare you to watch it and not cry because here are the people of God sweating what it means to live out the kingdom and not just studying what it means to live out the kingdom. And I just want us to remember whatever it was in your life, if you've never been there, I hope you're getting there through the text today, to be inspired to serve tangibly to demonstrate and display the kingdom of God in this world and what it looks like when He invades backyards and turns messes into gardens or invades our hearts and turns those messes into life. I mean, we've said this stuff. Just hear it again. We do not want to be consumer, seat-sitting Christians. We believe Jesus has not just came to change our Sundays, but our everyday. 
This is what we mean when we say we want to make the real Jesus known to the broken, burnt out, and the bored. Some people are like, what do you mean by bored? I understand broken and burnt out. Bored means it's because you thought, man, Jesus is going to change my life. And then you find out, oh, all these church people want me to do is sit in a seat on Sunday. Or all they want me to do if I'm really faithful is, is serve in the nursery. Now, we need people to serve in the nursery, serve with kids, so nobody get mad at me. But, like, guess what? That's, that's boring in the larger scope of life. So you're telling me my mission is to listen to you talk or watch kids so other people can watch you talk. Like, that, that's not what the whole story of God is about. It's about engaging you in a, in a life that you live for His glory and worship and serving and giving in His name in the stuff of every day. We live in a bored world. And sadly, when people think of Jesus and the church, they, they think, well, that, what does that do? We want but the gospel comes to connect us to the mission of the kingdom of God. We've often said from the start, is like, we don't want to give people just another Bible study to disobey. You're studying through James. You read and it says, pure and undefiled religion is to love the orphan and the widow. And everybody talks like, yeah, that's great. I'll see you back next week for when we do James 2. And then you read James 2. Oh, look, it says not to prefer the rich over the poor. I'll see you back next week and we'll do James 3. It says, oh, we should not use our tongues to hurt one another. Great, I'll see you next week. But when did anybody ever stop to go love an orphan or a widow? Maybe we need to obey James 1 before we go to James 2. Maybe that's what it means to be a disciple. We want to be inspired by these things. We want to do it together as the church. I work for a nonprofit, so what I'm about to say is not being negative towards that. But you know why so many nonprofits exist? It's because this is all churches do. People get disillusioned with the church, and they say, if we, ever, if we really want to do something in the world, we're going to have to go start something else. And again, I work for one. I think they're great. Where's the church? Before I go down the road even more of why we get disillusioned, I do want to stop and praise God for what He's done this year in our church. On top of all I shared that was real examples in the introduction is that this year our Stewart uh, Park missional community, there's, you could just hear the stories of how they bought and served breakfast to the elementary school teachers there at Stewart Elementary, how they did what these sort of drive-by birthdays during COVID to people that didn't have family or be able to experience this. How they established and stocked a little food pantry area. How they had cleanup days for the school and more. There's just not time to say more. How our Magnolia Avenue MC helped neighbors move, bought and made sure that people without had air conditioners in their homes during the hot months, played and watched kids for neighbors, met needs of students, connected students to people serving their neighbors. In the Blythe Oldfield MC, making soups for seniors, mowing yards, tarping roofs in East Cleveland after the tornado, establishing a little library and a little food pantry so people can, can have access to those things at any time, cleaning out houses, working in community garden. We could say more, all of these communities having a weekly family meal, and that's slowed down some during COVID, but like wanting to open our homes and give of our time and our, our, our prep to that. Our whole church pitching in during this year to fully furnish an apartment for an addict so that she could get off the streets. People giving of their finances to those who've had their power turned off, who need, who need to move towards getting driver's license. We've bought gas, groceries, temporary hotel rooms for people in tight spots and sought to do all of this in relational context. If you give financially to our church, that, I mean, this is a lot of what things are going towards. But in spite of all those things that we give God glory for, if any of you in here were a part of all that, I don't think any of us would say that that was like riding on this wave of intense, nonstop joy. 
If you're like me, some days you sit around and you think, are we even doing anything? That's why I had to do that part to remind myself. And there's a family in here who just who gave a van away to somebody. I mean, there's great things happening, but a lot of times along the way, things just feel so mundane and they feel so ordinary. And we get disillusioned and then we begin to detach and we begin to think that maybe it's not worth it because the video couldn't be made about what I did. And so we're, we're encouraged to press on in our frustration. Verses 6 and 7 point us to this. Paul says, we're sending Titus, I'm going to paraphrase this stuff, so that you can complete this act of grace. So the Corinthians are doing some good stuff, but they, they just not really went all in on being sacrificial, self-givers, servants of their finances in intangible ways. Titus is going to help them in that. Verse 7, he says, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Unlike many people, and I'll, I'll throw myself in this category, many leaders, preachers, whoever, don't want to talk, call people to sacrificial giving, whether it's financially or tangibly. Well, you just can't read the Gospels without talking about it. Jesus is always calling people to, to give. It's a sign of their hearts. And the big backdrop of what's going on in 2 Corinthians here is if you had time is to go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 where Paul talks about how the body of Christ has been gifted in such beautiful ways and yet the Corinthians are using that selfishly. They have a lot of these great gifts of speech and knowledge and faith. But they use it in self-serving ways and they use it in ways that are mainly limited towards their gathering, their Sunday gathering. And so it becomes chaotic. It becomes a bad witness to the world. So what Paul is saying here is, come on guys. Those gifts are great. Praise the Lord that you have them. Let's celebrate them. But don't just stick with the less tangible sacrificial service gifts. No matter how great those are, your faith, your speech, and your knowledge, you need to put that faith into action in a self-giving, sacrificial way. And we, we know how we feel about churches who build multi-million dollar facilities and then only use those for a few hours on Sundays or occasional Bible studies, throw in some service projects occasionally with a great video, and occasionally do a big donation to kind of highlight, hey, we're, we're doing that too. Churches that shrink the church's mission and vision only to matters of faith, speech, and knowledge. It can be disillusioning to us. It can be disillusioning to the world. But what I want to underline here today is we're not one of those pointing our fingers, is pointing the finger at ourselves. is you will be disillusioned as a part of our church too. You will get where Paul is in this frustration to where there will be times to where you think, wow, we're just talking. And if serving is more about the service you do than the servant that you are, you may find yourself disillusioned into a detachment from the very identity that God has given you in Christ. Sometimes in our church, you may get more disillusioned here than you would somewhere that doesn't talk about it. We have high vision and high expectations in these areas. So some may step into the life of our church, or some have, and you think it's going to be this, this constant world of these big projects. Maybe you're coming into here and you do wrongly. We don't ever want to have this. Or coming on the, on the back of an anti-vision instead of a vision. What I mean by anti-vision is we don't want to be like those churches. We don't want that attitude here in our hearts. We want an attitude. It's not about not being like somebody. We, we want to be with and become and do like Jesus did. So the opportunity for disappointment and disillusionment it may be greater here than somewhere else. We need to be ready for that. And those of us who have experienced it, we need to evaluate where our hearts are at in that. We've often said in our family of churches, we want to be the short-term mission trip that never ends. 
And that's a beautiful statement. But guess what? We're not short-term missionaries. We're long-term missionaries. Our missional communities are set up not to be flash-in-the-pan VBSs, as great as those are. They're meant to be consistent, faithful presences among people. And our lives are more like long-term missionaries. At least some that I've talked to. Not everybody. Go find some international missionaries who do it for a long time. Not all of their lives are going to be wonderful biographies made in the movies. They're still going to have sicknesses, family frustrations, and slow times. Does that mean it's any less beautiful? Being a part of a servant in our church may be more like helping with laundry and taking somebody's trash out every week than seeing 200 people come to an event where you give them medical help and they all come to know Jesus. And that's good too. But we often don't see how to use a word that's used in these talks a lot of times, radical, we often fail to see how radical the ordinary is. I I believe God, and I at least know I am, I am so much more impressed by somebody who can be faithful in the small things over the course of years to sacrifice and serve people than somebody who's like saying, I'll go on this trip where we basically, you know, carry people up Mount Everest for two weeks. Now, both are good. But sometimes we forget that Jesus lived 33 years on this earth and you don't know anything much about that first 30. And it all mattered so much. We don't see how radical the ordinary is. Listening to your friends. Getting somebody's mail. Inviting somebody over for a meal. Helping somebody change a light bulb. Buying a crock pot. And saying, when our family meals get going, here's how I'm going to serve. I'm going to show up with something in this crock pot. These are the things of the kingdom. And that should lead some of us to repentance. I want to say, first of all, it should lead some of of us leaders to repentance. We need to do better at making sure that it's very clear where people can get in on these tangible acts of service. We need to grow at that. And at the end of our gathering today, Tim will lay out some of those ways we're trying to. But also, we want to disciple our people, all of us as disciples, to realize... You are a servant. Being a servant means taking a posture to where you're always asking yourself, because of who I am, how can I live that out in my everyday life at work, in my home, in my engagement, in my missional community, in my common mission? Like, I'm not sitting here waiting for somebody just to tell me what to do. You are a spirit-filled child of God. You don't need a leader just to tell you what to do. You're called to grow as a disciple of Jesus who lives the life from the lens of your servant identity and who grows in noticing, who says like Jesus said, Jesus, what are you going to do next? I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to do whatever I see the Father doing. And what if we showed up in our, in our dorm rooms, in our, in our suites, in our homes, in our workplaces, in the, the spheres of our missional community, and we walk in with that kind of mindset. I'm coming here not to be served, but to serve. And I'm going to be aware, what is the Father doing? What is He inviting me into right now? Life is not boring if you live that way. Because everything matters. There's no wasted times. There's no wasted opportunities. There's no need for somebody to hand you the list we're going to offer you later, which those are good. We want to do that, like I said. But we learn to be present. We learn to be discipled by Jesus. We remember that a servant is one whose posture is humility, not one whose posture is, you better give me a good service experience. 
That's the opposite of the heart of a servant. The heart of a servant is one who comes as a servant. Jesus says in Mark 10, 35 through 45, we know verse 45 that, you know, these, these Bible terms are not just servant, but bondservant, slave of a good king. How do we get motivated to do that? Notice verse 8. Paul gives them this inspiration. He addresses this, this background frustration. And then in verse 8, he moves to this motivation. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, partially why I say this, he says not as a command, is because us church folk thrive on guilt and fear and shame. Like, this is what the enemy wants to do when any type of high expectation, high vision, high conviction comes into our lives. Is he wants us to then be go motivated by guilt instead of grace. Because when we're motivated by guilt instead of grace, God isn't giving any glory. It's about us. We want to get the monkey off our back. Right? We want to do the thing that we're supposed to do so we can feel better about ourselves. But what we're given here is a motivation that is not driven by guilt and shame and fear, but by grace. It's why if we went back to this background context of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, when he's saying you have all these gifts, you need to use them, there's a chapter in the middle of all those gifts. It's 1 Corinthians 13, and it's that great chapter on love. And as wonderful as we want to use it at weddings, and I have did that myself as a pastor, and as beautiful as you might want to buy something at Hobby Lobby to hang over your sink or your bathroom that has it sketched, that love chapter is at the heart and in the middle of the context of what it means to be servants of God in and through the local church. It's saying you can do all the stuff. You can go out here and martyr yourself for somebody, it says. But if you don't do it from a heart of love that has been captured by the love of God for you, then the hard reality is it wasn't nothing. It wasn't anything. It was nothing. How do we get into this grace motivation for our service instead of the guilt? One of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible that we've already read today. 2 Corinthians 8 9. Let's, let's explain this a little more. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We could unpack this for the rest of our lives. But to our point today, how does this happen? How do we get motivated to keep serving when we're disillusioned? when we're disappointed in others, ourselves, our church, our world. We've got to put our eyes on Jesus. It happens by beholding, becoming like, and doing what Jesus did for us. He was rich. How was he rich here? Well, it's not like they, they've got a lot of money laying around in eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's rich in the, the height of any comfort and fellowship and joy that you could imagine. There's no messy people like us within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a joy and a comfort relationally and provisionally. And what Jesus did is He said, I am willingly going to step out of that to get in on all this. I love you. There is no greater sacrifice in the history of the world than that. Because many of us, when we think of service, we're, we're thinking, you know, I'll step out of my comfort financially, or I'll step out of the comfort of my schedule for a couple hours, but what we don't think is, I'm going to step out of the comfort of my relational peace to get in the middle of the relational mess that service always brings. That's what Jesus did. That's why a lot, we, a lot of disciples don't want to do this, right? Because it's like, I'll do stuff. I just don't want to deal with people. Jesus, this is what it means. Though he was rich, though he had everything in fellowship and peace and comfort, he became poor 
That is, he stepped into a world full of sin, of spiritual and physical and emotional and relational poverty. And he did that so that we might then, who are in that physical, spiritual, relational, emotional poverty, might then be led into the richness of that triune fellowship and glory and we can know that that is ours for all of eternity. And now by the Spirit, it breaks in every now and then. It's broken in, but we experience it. This was costly. The Macedonians are not the great example in this text. It's Jesus. It's costly. And it says in Hebrews, He endured this cross for the joy set before Him. That is, he, even the Son in His incarnation, in His life in this world, he was, he was operating, He was serving, He was healing, He was giving, He was dying from the overflow of the grace and the joy of God. He was the servant king who loved the least of these. This is why what Paul is doing here by the Spirit is he's wanting us all to see that when it comes to being servants, we've all got to realize we are first of all the served. You and me, we are the ones who are needy. This is our posture as servants. We've already been served and are being served way more than anything that's ever going to be asked of us. The sacrifice, tangible, spiritual that Jesus gave for us in His life and His death and resurrection that we needed and we, pers- we could not live without is greater by far than any call to sacrifice any of us will receive. Financially, physically, and again relationally. My call into ministry was on an ordinary Sunday night when I was in ninth grade. I know that sounds weird. I'm not trying to sound super spiritual. But anyway, I want to think this helps. I remember I was sitting there. I wasn't planning this to happen. And it was old school, probably at least to a lot of y'all, not to all of us. 1992, 93. I'm in ninth grade. Missionaries want to come talk at your church. They let them come talk. They're up there at the front. There's no laptops and all this stuff. This is old school. Some of you guys remember this where the missionaries come in and they're showing their slides. You know, and I don't know how that was going on. I know it wasn't through HDMI and Apple. And they're just showing all these pictures. And I don't know, I, I hope it was the Holy Spirit. I think it was. It just broke in on me. And I just remember being overwhelmed by thinking, this family, so much like my family here, has stepped away from Super Mario Brothers, has stepped away from McDonald's, has stepped away from, from Little League Baseball, all this stuff, like they, all these sacrifices, and they've moved to this other country to love these people and to give themselves for these people. And I was just, sitting, I was just overwhelmed, like, that's what I want to give my life to. And so in that context, you know, of course, you walk, walk the aisle at the end and bow down at the altar, which I think we shouldn't call that an altar. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. And I did that, and here I am. But here's what I'm getting to, not to say something good about myself then. Do you know how many days since then I've wanted to, like, just quit? Do you, you don't want to know how many days this week I wanted to quit. <laughs> Like, hey, you get so disillusioned because your life's not a slideshow. How many days we think of doing something else, something easier? And if we're honest, a lot of times it's not that we don't want to serve. It's like, I just want to go find somewhere to serve where I don't have, it doesn't have to be so messy. And there don't have to be so many of these people involved, these layers. So what am I learning to do? How am I applying this message? This isn't something I'm doing well. This is me sharing with you how I'm wanting to respond in faithfulness. When I get in those moments like that, I don't think back on those missionaries. 
Because I've been around this church stuff a lot longer than a 13-year-old boy was. And after studying missions and growing up for all those years, for all I know, those missionaries were engaged in unhealthy practices and finances and all kinds of stuff. I don't know. I don't think they were, but they might have been. We've heard the stories. They may not even be buried anymore. If I studied their lives, I might could be more disillusioned. And before I sound judgmental, I certainly don't want to look in the mirror at myself and say, man, keep serving because you've been so faithful. No, how many times have I did something just because I felt like I should do it? How many times as a leader have I sent out service opportunities not because it's made out of love, it's because I'm thinking somebody out there is probably judging me because I've not sent out serving opportunities. Where do we look? Where do I look? I can't look to y'all all the time, right? You're not always faithful. You can't look to me. Don't look to me all the time. Where do we look? Well, the answer is as obvious as it is hard to apply in our everyday lives. We've got to look to Jesus. He's got to be the lead servant in our lives, calling us into service. It's the only way we will keep being discipled by Him as servants in the disillusionment of all the mess of our service. You will take your ball and go home if your servant identity rests on everybody else's faithfulness to your expectations or even their own. But if you remember that even yourself and your most needy state, He gave Himself for. It's ultimately Him who you serve because He has served you. He gave Himself for you. In our spiritual poverty, He went to the cross and He bore all that we deserve to bear for our sin so that we might be rich in relationship with Him and in purpose in our lives. He bore our iniquities. He took on our diseases. By His stripes we are healed. It is He through all the wounds in our hearts and our bodies. It's He who's brought us healing. No one else. It's He who delivers us from the enemy, the lies and oppression. It's He whom we serve. So how do we endure as servants when it's so frustrating and disillusioning? It's like, it's got... We got to be following Jesus. We're his disciples. We're servants of the great servant king. Jesus did this stuff, we forget it. His life led to the cross, but it wasn't all. This this is Jesus who shows up at a wedding and they run out of wine and he makes the party better. He doesn't just say I'm going to stop and preach y'all a message on planning and frugality that could have not let this mess happen. No, he, he, he makes more wine. It's Jesus who looks out on the crowds and sees that they're harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he preaches them the glories of the kingdom and the gospel, but he also feeds them. It's Jesus who heals the sick. It's Jesus who raises the dead. It's Jesus who says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Who didn't just sacrifice in moving from heaven to earth, but sacrificed even as He moved on earth. It's His relational love that would be the one who got down on His knees and washed His disciples' feet. Now that's a a bridge too far for some of us in here, right? Washing each other's feet. I don't want any of you to touch my feet. It's a humility to receive that. Right? You've got to be a servant heart to receive that. And it's a humility to do that. I don't want to touch your feet. Where's Daniel at? He likes showing me his feet. Don't want me and Daniel washing each other's feet. And yet Jesus is here. And these dudes are walking around in probably sandals and horse What's the proper word to use probably in this setting? Horse dung, right? I mean, they get to 30 feet. And then here comes Peter, like all us. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus, Jesus is 
so emotionally differentiated and so not dependent on how everybody feels around him. He's like, if I ain't washing your feet, then you have no part in me at all. You've got to receive from me my humble service of you and now go and wash each other's feet, he says. Some traditions think that's to be applied uh, literally, if y'all don't know it. Foot washing Baptist, if you've never heard of them, right? Just like Lord's Supper and baptism, they throw in washing feet. We don't do that, but this is why. And occasionally it might be good for us to do that. Some of you are like, this will be my last Sunday here. I'm not planning to do that. Coronavirus, yes, finally it's good for something. We can't do that because of coronavirus. But there's a discipleship here. Because that's the picture of service. Not us. We work in a community garden. So I'm not, but the, the big picture of service is not us like just going and building some community garden. The picture of service is you washing your dirty brother or sister's feet. And you know what happens when you wash people's feet? Sometimes you get kicked in the face. So the text ends, and we won't touch much here. Verses 10 through 15, he's saying, finish this work. Like you started it, you did it, now you kind of desire it, finish it. Specifically in this context, finish this sacrificial giving to the relief of the church at Jerusalem. To our broader context, finish your life as a servant of the one who served you. Father, thank you so much you sent your son to give his life for us that we might give our lives for you and for others. Forgive us for the times when we've been disillusioned or disappointed by the opportunities for service or our own service or others that we've denied our identity as a servant. And thank you that even in those times you've not stopped serving us, Jesus, but continue to pray for us, to empower us by your spirit. And even now, we pray, God, that, Spirit, you would serve us now as we come to the table. We pray, God, that we would receive again the promise that it is finished. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each